Well, hey there, and welcome to the Saints Church Glory Hills podcast. We're so happy that you joined us today. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, we believe that God will speak to you through one of our pastors today. Let's jump in. Uh, I titled the message today, Sincerely, because John is kind of closing out his letter to the, the church in 1 John, and, and it's kind of the end where he's saying, hey, in closing, sincerely, I just want you to know, with all sincerity of heart, with all that I am, this is what I was really trying to relate to you all along. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, because I don't need to be discouraged right before I preach, but uh, some of you should have read First John all the way through in 15 and 20 minutes. If you haven't done that, I'm telling you. Think about the messages that we've heard and then read this short letter in about 15, 20 minutes. And the context, when you start seeing the weaving and the overlapping of week to week, it's going to make so much more sense to you. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says this. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I find it very interesting that as John kind of makes his transition to the end of the book, he closes all of his thoughts and what he's saying in verse 13 and then tags on a few things in 14 to 21. And, and the climax of all of 1 John really comes back to 1 John 5.13 where he says, I've written this to you who believe in the Son of God. Why? So you might be sure that you might know that you have eternal life. John, from his gospel to his letters, is trying to be, bring people back to the place of truth and understanding and a knowledge of who Jesus is because there were so many things going on in the world saying, well, Jesus can be part of it, but you will have higher understanding and greater knowledge if you add this and you add that. And the rise of Gnosticism is causing confusion in the church. And what's happening is John's coming back to a place where he says it may sound way too simple. It might not look as pretty as some of these well-sounding arguments and these high uh, pieces of knowledge that all of these false teachers claim to have. But he goes, as an old man, I just want to tell you this. The pure and simple truth of the gospel. That when you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you can be sure that you have eternal life. And he circles this all the way back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, where it says this. He says, I'm writing to these things to you so that your joy may be full. Everybody say full. You want your joy to be full? It will not be found in anyone or anything other than the fact that Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, came, He loved you, He gave His life for you, and you can be sure that you have eternal life because of the truth of the gospel. You want joy, and you want joy to the full? It is only always ever found in Jesus. This is what John's saying. He goes, I wanted to write this to you children. I want you to love one another. I want you to understand light and darkness. I want you to understand the struggles of this life and the world. But I actually, what I really want is you to know that your joy can be full when you understand who Jesus is and you find your security, your salvation, your future, your everything in Jesus Christ, the living Son of God. Because that's what was under attack. The very idea that Jesus was divine was under attack. The very idea that you could only come to the Father through Jesus. The things that John starts writing about, he goes, it seems so way too simple. 
It's not very glamorous. It doesn't look very nice on paper. Like seriously, that's the gospel? That Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, and if you would trust in Jesus, you can be sure of your salvation. You can walk with him, live with him, and know And all these other teachers are like, well, that's good. That's good to come to a place where you you believe God and you trust him. But what about this? And what about that? And what about uh, all these other things that you can do that can make you better than other people? And what about these high-sounding spiritual arguments and all of those things? So John is in this place where he's trying to remind the church nearing the end of his life that there's this war, there's this struggle for truth, and, and you're going to face it, you're going to feel it, and he's talking about all these things, but he, he ends the book at this high point saying that this is why I wrote to you, I want your joy to be full, and it comes to the place where you realize your joy is full when you realize and understand that you don't have to wonder and worry about your salvation before God because when you walk with him, when you serve him, when you follow Jesus one step at a time, you really can set your eyes on Jesus who not only starts but he finishes the faith work inside of you and, and, and he leads you into a hope of salvation not because of anything you've done but because of what Jesus did. He's writing to us so we might believe in the name of Jesus that our joy might be complete, and that we might have confidence in our eternal life. The crazy thing to me is this. I've been in the church my whole life. I've been in the church since uh, the week after I was born. And the crazy thing to me is I've never had a hard time trusting God for salvation and believing that the gospel is true and that God is for us. But yet when something goes wrong in the natural or you get sick, or you can't control something, we struggle to believe God for that. And I think that just goes to show, not that we're bad Christians, but that's the power of the gospel. That's how powerful it is, that when we place our faith in Jesus, the redeeming work of God is so powerful that we actually have more faith to believe that than we do for some of the other things we should trust God in his word for. And I think that's a grace of God when that comes to happen, but some of us actually wrestle with the ins and outs of, am I really saved? Did I really do that right or wrong? Am I good enough? And the answer needs to come back to a place where we don't live in fear and worry, but we live in hope and confidence that God is for us and he's leading us forward when we walk with him, when we submit our lives to him. Why? Because this is what the gospel is. In John chapter 20, verse 31, it says this. It says, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. You don't have life because you studied enough scripture. You don't have life because you said all the right things or you did all the right things. Now the Bible starts talking about how to walk in God's ways and his commands and they have benefits to our life. But it says, you believed in the power of the name of Jesus. And that's it. The power that's in the name of Jesus, this is what these higher truths and this new truth and your own truth and what Gnosticism 2,000 years ago and things today are trying to say that there is more to believe and worry about and wonder about than the actual power that's in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus and then there is a process that God leads us on as we walk with him and we live with him. John 17 verse 3 says this, and this is the way to have eternal life, 
to know you, talking about Jesus, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. This gets pretty exclusive. Eternal life is found in knowing Jesus. It's knowing the Father. It's knowing that He is the only way to the Father. There is no higher knowledge. There is no greater truth. There is no fuller joy than knowing Jesus than finding life through the divine Son of God. And this is what John is really getting at. People who start denying the divine nature of Jesus cannot be God's disciples. Because without the divine nature, without Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, the very seed of God, fully God, fully man, there is no life to be found because that would mean human life could have paid the price for our sin. And we get to know the divine Son of God and experience the life that He has for us. And so today I just really have five things that I want to leave with you because when we start talking about this, when we start to really look into this is what it's all about, the power of the gospel, the power of the name of Jesus to bring life where there was death, to bring healing where there was no hope, to bring uh, a future and to wipe the slate clean when there was sin and shame and darkness. There, there are some things that change when we have confidence in our eternal life with Jesus. Because when we say, well, I, I believe in the name of Jesus and I have confidence in my eternity because of the name of Jesus, actually what's going to begin to happen is your nature and your heart needs to change and you got to see some things a little bit differently. Because if you don't see God for who he really is, you'll never understand your life, your struggle in the world the way it actually is. You'll see it through your human eyes. And so when we come to this place of uh, understanding that our confidence, our hope is in the power of the name of Jesus, we need to know that this changes the way we see how the following five things work. Number one today is this. This changes the way we see how prayer works. Because so many of us have lived in a life where prayer is begging and pleading and worrying and hoping that God will hear us. And if we pray the right way and we say the right things and we throw enough Father Gods and Holy Spirit and all those things in our prayer and we sound more spiritual, that it's going to work. There is no formula that makes it work in the sense of working ourselves up to do it. The Bible gives us patterns and ways to pray and things to pray through. Why? Because prayer is more about developing your submission to the will of God and understanding the way He works than it is about you laying out your list of wants and likes and hopes and dreams and asking God to make them work according to your will, not His. And that's the scary thing about prayer because we go to prayer and usually one person changes and it's not usually God. And even when God gives us the desires of our heart, He changes us in the process or motive and the way we see God is right before we step into those things. See, in verse 14 and 15, John, after he talks about Jesus being our hope, as he talks about uh, that God comes and he, he wants us to know that we have confidence in the name of Jesus in our eternal life, he says, then he goes on in verse 14 and 15, he says this, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. Now here's the stipulation. Some translations say when we pray according to his will. 
Now, you don't have to get so worried about going, well, is this the will of God? Is that the will of God? Is healing the will of God? Scripture shows us that some things are the will of God. But the language here where it says, where we pray for things, we're confident that he hears us, and he answers when we pray in a way that pleases him. John is one of the first disciples that addresses this. He says that if you start taking on a prayer life, and it's probably because he's the last remaining living disciple that walked with Jesus, he's at a place where he's watching people turn their prayer time into dream lists of God, uh, you know, kind of make my life what I want it to be. And they've kind of become these wish list Christians, and then they struggle with the higher knowledge and all the things around them in the world because their list isn't being met. Where he's saying, guys, when we pray according to what pleases God, you're going to be transformed. You're going to be confident. You're going to know that you can trust God. Why? Because you pray according to his will. Prayer is to work in us, and it's supposed to work with boldness and confidence before the Father. When we come to pray, we should pray with boldness and confidence. Why? Because we have a Heavenly Father that wants to talk with us. We have a Heavenly Father that receives us into His presence. We have a great high priest that has made a way for us to bring our prayers and petitions before Him. And so we don't come in fearful and cowering, but we come with boldness and confidence that He wants to hear us, He wants to listen, but we also come with a humility and an understanding that when we come before God, we must lean into his purpose and his will as he leads us through the things that we're praying about. We can be bold and confident because he hears us, but not only that, we, might, we, we, we have to submit to the lordship of Jesus through prayer to discover the will of God through prayer, not just our own desires. John is very concerned about people chasing wants and desires versus leaning into the power of the name of Jesus and letting him be Lord of their life. If you love one another, if you understand the love of the Father, if you lean into the Lordship of Jesus, it's going to change the way you pray. That's why when we pray over people who need healing and they need restoration in their lives, God's will is that you have a full life. God's will is that you produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. God's will is that you experience healing, and His will and His purpose is to lead you fuller into the things that he has for you. So when we pray for people, when we pray for the life of God to be at work with them, we can pray boldly and confidently. Why? Because that's the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the way we're led to pray for people, to pray for one another, to lean into who he is. And when we understand the confidence we have in our salvation, it changes the way we see that prayer works. Number two, it changes the way we see that sin matters. Well, wait a second. I thought we just talked about how we don't got to do anything, and we don't have to worry, and our confidence is in the name of Jesus, and he's our eternal hope. Yeah, that's true, but sin still matters. And let me tell you why, because in verse 16 and 17, we see these things. It says, if you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray. And God will give that person life, but there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray for those who commit it. Verse 17, all wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. Now, this portion of Scripture has had theology upon theology and things built all around it because people want to know what's the unforgivable sin. 
Pastor, what if I accidentally commit the unforgivable sin? What if I make that mistake? Then I'm doomed forever. Then, then, I, then God won't forgive me. And, and we have to come back to a place where we understand that sin matters, though we know and understand that it doesn't control everything. See, the reason sin matters is because even sin that John's talking about, sin that does not lead to death, we are sinners that are saved by grace. We are born into sin, and all sin matters. Why does it matter? Because sin severs and wrecks our relationship with God, and it hurts our relationship with other people. That's why all the commandments were summed up in two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you're not loving in the love of God, when you're sinning against one another, when you're hurting one another, it's destroying relationship, both with God and with the people around you. So sin definitely matters, but it doesn't matter so much that God is not over all of it. What was happening in the church where people were starting to say, well, you know, maybe you committed the unforgivable sin. Maybe you blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Maybe you did this. And John actually brings us back to a place where if you read the whole context, John's not talking just about natural. He's talking in a spiritual sense. So why when he says a sin that leads to death, do we think it's a natural sin? See, sin that leads to death, when you look at it from a spiritual perspective, what John's actually saying here is he's saying, look, all sin is wrong. And it's going to hurt your relationship with God. It's going to hurt your relationship with others. But he said, you should pray for others that God might bring them life. What he's really saying is there is no sin too big that the healing power of Jesus and the power in the name of Jesus cannot bring life and resurrection back to that situation when that sin is submitted to the cross and under the blood of Jesus Christ. Because when we see it as, well, there's one thing or there's an unforgivable sin, and if we're so worried about that, what we're actually saying is some people have committed a sin that God can't restore and heal. But the Bible says God's will is that all men should be saved. They should come to the Father through Jesus. And, and when they come to Jesus, it says, repent, confess your sins, turn from them. doesn't mean you keep going on in them. But we shouldn't be those that are marginalizing people looking and saying, well, that's so big, God can never save them. He says we should pray for people. When people get stuck in this sin struggle, we should pray for them that there should be healing. See, the sin that ultimately need, leads to death is the denial in the power of the name of Jesus and his salvation. It's a spiritual death. Because if we want to talk about the natural sin that leads to death, let's just go back to Romans. For the wages of sin is death. All sin leads to death outside of Jesus. But the next verse says, but the free gift of God is the salvation through Jesus Christ, his son. There is a receiving of Jesus, so sin matters. But church, when we struggle, when we see people struggling with sin... Let's understand that God has a better way and there's power in the name of Jesus and he wants to bring healing and he wants to bring restoration. And so we pray for people. We pray that God would help them repent, leave that stuff at the altar and move forward in their walk with Jesus. Because if we live and we think that we're going to go on as believers and never sin again, we're fooling ourselves. And this was what some of that higher teaching was teaching. Is like they, they were putting on this facade in this persona that's like, well, I've had a higher level of enlightenment, and so my sin's not really sin anymore. I'm actually pure and perfect and all these things. And you're like, well, that's kind of weird and messed up. And John's saying, why don't you remember that 
Sin is not more powerful than Jesus, but every sin that is not submitted to the power of Jesus has the potential to lead to death and separation from God. So the only sin that leads to spiritual eternal death is really the person that closes their heart and says, I refuse to believe in the power of the gospel, the name of Jesus, and submit my life to him. And they are choosing to say, God, I don't believe that you are powerful enough to save me. And that leads to a separation and a, and, a, and a distance from God. But people who come and say, Jesus, here's my struggles, here's my sin. I'm going to put my trust in your name and in the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to grow and I'm going to live. The Bible says, John says, you need to pray for people that God might bring them life, not death. And so sin matters. See, we're not called to live and be fearful to the point where we stop believing the powerful power of God is enough to cover and pardon our sins and the sins of others. Sin that leads to death is a spirit, in a spiritual sense is the ultimate denial of the power of God to overcome and the power of the sacrifice of Jesus. So I want you to know this morning that when our hope is secure, when we are eternally confident in our hope in Jesus Christ, it changes the way we see prayer. It changes the way we believe that sin matters. But it changes the way we see that the struggle in our life is very real. Because now let's get down to kind of brass tacks. I was going to say that. I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Everyone under 30, I'm like, maybe you are old. <laughs> maybe I am. We have a new life in Jesus, but we have an old man that fights us, like not like a literal old man, but you know, an old nature. That's a weird picture, right? Some old man trying to fight us all the time. <laughs> I'm just having fun. We have an old nature that's constantly trying to bring us back into things that we struggle with. And in verse 18 and 19, I just want to read the beginning part of these verses. It says this, we know that God's children don't make a practice of sinning, for God's son holds them securely. Verse 19, sorry, Keith, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. So when we start talking about the struggle being real, when we live in confidence of our salvation, our hope in the power of the name of the Jesus you know, it's like, well, I thought this was supposed to be easy and this was supposed to be done and this was supposed to be better because Jesus paid the price. He's all powerful. I don't have to worry about my sin, my guilt, my shame. He's forgiven me. And then yet I, I, I'm a Christian for a week or two or 10 years and I still have struggles and desires and things that I got to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ because I just can't seem to kick some of those things. And, and should I be worried that I'm not saved or God doesn't love me? No, the answer, the answer is no. The answer is God God knows that the struggle is real. When we live in this place where we say, God, I know I'm your child. I know I belong to you. I know you've overcome all these things, but I still have these areas of my life that I have to submit to you. Because any person like me who has decided and tried at times to say, I'm going to be better in dealing with things in my life by doing it on my own and figuring it out and making a bunch of rules and... <clears throat> trying to hold myself accountable without the power of Jesus involved, guess what? The struggle is real, people. 
You end up in shame and discouragement and brokenness. The only thing that gives you the power to overcome sin was the very person you came to when you surrendered your life and you believed Him for salvation. So why, a week later, a month later, ten years later, do we stop submitting the struggles of our life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Because you're not going to do it on your own. His grace is sufficient for you. He is going to cover you. He's going to lead you in repentance and holiness and change you. And, and, and the disciple of Jesus should see a radical decline of sin in their life as they walk with Jesus, not because they are better people or they figured it all out, but because they know their God and they know the power of God. And when the struggle comes, they're so quick to say, Jesus, here it is. I can't deal with this on my own. I need your strength to help me. We should be able to overcome because we know God, but the struggle is still real. Our confidence is not in the fact that we are perfect and that we don't struggle. Rather, it's in the fact that he protects us. Isn't that amazing that John threw that line in there? This is that we can have confidence. We know we're God's children because he protects us. You know, being a father, being a parent, it gets really real when you realize that there are certain things your kids never have to hurt themselves with or experience on their own if you protect and teach them how to avoid those things. And that is the heart of our father, that when we submit to him, he says, okay, I've covered your sin. I've paid the price. You don't have to worry about whether or not I love you. But when you struggle, when there's things that come your way, will you come bring that to me? Because I want to protect you. I want to show you how to overcome. I want to stop you from letting that destroy your life and ruin the things that you've looked for and wanted. So here's the most encouraging part of the message today, I think. So we struggle in confidence, not in despair. Isn't that an amazing word? You're going to struggle. I'm going to struggle some days. But what if we struggled with confidence that God is going to lead us through rather than hope and despair that we're despicable, horrible people and we're never going to get there? One will actually lead us closer to Jesus and the other one will keep us in a vacuum and a cycle of, <clears throat> of worry and anxiety and wondering if God can ever use us or He can ever take us anywhere, or if we're actually going to be saved one day. God doesn't want you to live in that place. He wants to live you in the truth of your salvation, in the power of Jesus Christ, living in confidence that, Lord, I'm struggling right now, but confidently I can put this stuff before you, and you're going to help me overcome. And I might make a mistake, but I'm going to surrender it to you, and I'm going to get up tomorrow, and I'm going to confidently move forward. Why? Because I struggle with confidence, not with despair. Because I see the struggle differently because of my hope in Jesus Christ. You see, Galatians 2, 20 and 21 says this. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if by keeping the law could make us right with God, then there is no need for Christ to die. And the writer of Galatians puts it this way, saying, I have to live my new life in Jesus by faith, trusting him that when I do struggle, when I do make mistakes, my confidence is in who Jesus is. 
But he says, don't ever take that to a place saying, well, I'm saved by grace and grace alone and God is all powerful so I can live however I want. He says, do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. Don't treat it as something to be played with. Treat it as something to be honored and loved and and help you grow in who you are and who God's called you to be. And, And as we get to this type of life, we begin to see that the struggle is real, but we can struggle differently. Everyone's still with me? Okay, number four. Number four. If we're going to live out a life and we're going to live in the confidence that says, hey, I want my joy to be full and I want my confidence to be in Jesus, in his lordship in my life, and I am secure in my salvation and my eternity, the fourth thing that we are going to start seeing differently is we're going to start seeing that the way the world works, the way of the world works differently for us now. And here's what I mean by that. The way of the world, it works differently for us now. Because we are always trying to figure out our place in this life, in our careers, in our jobs, in our families, in our relationship. But the way of the world was not meant to be our way. But it doesn't mean we so distance ourselves and we're never a part of anything in the world. Because that's what some people did. And even Jesus, one of the commentators I was reading, studying about this said, Jesus did not afford his disciples that luxury. You don't get to be like the Pharisees and say, I'll never associate with someone who doesn't know Jesus or lives in sin. You don't get that luxury. Jesus went from place to place, and he had compassion on people, and he laid his hands on people. But he says the way of the world works differently. Because people who are looking to build their life and live out of the way of the world, they forget that the way of the world is under the lordship of the evil one. Let's look at verse 18 and 19 again. It says this, the latter half of the verse. We know we're God's children. We don't make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. Verse 19. We know that we're children of God and that the world around us is under control of the evil one. So just because the world is under the control of the evil one, this is what John's saying. The world will never fix itself. Isn't that interesting? The world will try everything and anything to make things better, but they will never fix themselves. Because ultimately, they're looking to a system that wants to keep them in sin, destruction, and bondage. And everything that is good can get to a point where the enemy turns it to bring destruction, broken relationships, separation from God, separation from people. And as Christians, when we look at our life, the difference is it's not that we're not in the world anymore or not involved in things. It's just we see the world working differently because our Lord is Jesus Christ. We are not under the lordship of a worldly system. We are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So when the world thinks, give out more money and that's going to fix this situation, the people of God say, actually, we need to love one another and we need to help one another on a very tangible, practical level because that's what changes people and leads them forward. When the world says, Do this or do that to bring yourself to the place you want to be. The way of Jesus says you need to serve one another. You need to get down on your knees and wash each other's feet. And you need to show people that there is a God who paid the ultimate price so you can live differently. And Christians have been in this tearing place where they want to live in the world and they want to live like the world and the benefits of the world and they find themselves struggling more and more in sin where they got to get back to the place where the lordship of my life is under Jesus Christ and we're not slaves to the world any longer. We are servants to the lordship of Jesus in our life. 
So in everything that we do, our motives should be different. Our actions that lead our lives change. We understand that the answer to the world's problem cannot be solved in the world's ways. And so this means that because we're to be in the world but not of it, we got to figure out how to live among friends, neighbors, people, bringing the life and love of Jesus Christ to everyone we meet without stepping into a mold or a shaping of our lives under a world system because God's way is better. We're supposed to be salt and light. And can I tell you, for some of us, this is really difficult because we like to be liked. Nobody likes light going from darkness to immediate light. You ever been in the bedroom and your spouse or someone turns the light on and you weren't ready to wake up yet? It's one of the most annoying, painful things to be like rudely awakened like that. Some people are going to see your life that way. They're going to be so turned off or cranky towards you or offended by the light that you have in you because they've only ever lived in darkness. And that doesn't mean we just go into situations and let's turn the light on for everyone and make the whole world annoyed at us. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying there will be situations when you stand for what is true and what is right and what's in the word of God. It's going to be taken as an irritation. It's going to be taken as an affront. Why? Because light affects darkness. And that's what we're called to be when we live in the world. And, and we live in the world. We're not of it. So the way of the world works differently for us. We have our jobs. We provide for our families. We do those things. But we are not bound by those things. We are actually bound by the lordship of Jesus Christ. Plain and simple thing. Let's talk about our finances, for instance. Money is one of the greatest struggle for so many people. Mostly because many of us don't have it. It's frustrating. But this, this is the reality. Money is there to serve us, not us to serve money and make an idol out of it. And, and so when we're going to live in the world and not be of it, we have to live in a way and in a place where we say, God, there are things in my heart and my life that are submitted to your way, your plan, your purpose, because you rule my life. I remember a time, this, I don't know why this story came to mind, where when Brandy and I had stepped down from our one position, um, we sold our house too and we moved into my parents' basement. I thought it'd be for a couple months and it was for 14 months. So that was fun. Uh, Mimi and Papa's basement with three kids. It was actually wonderful. Like, I love my parents and it was amazing, but, uh, you know, nobody wants to be 32 and living in your parents' basement for a little over a year. It's it's not a good look when you're trying to say, I'm a grown man, I have a career, I have a family, I'm, I, I'm leading them the right way. And, you know, those are things that God works on your pride and stuff. And I remember every time uh, we would have to spend a little bit of money on things, whether it was for the kids or other things, it was painful because we had sold our house. And so we had a, a deposit for when we moved, before we moved to BC. We had money sitting in a bank account, and it was a nice little nest egg. But it actually killed Brandy and I every time we had to spend a little bit about that because that panic and that worry had to be like, well, what if there's not enough when the next season comes? But it was like also a season where like I made $12,000 in that 14 months. So like I seriously think we only ate because my dad kept buying groceries and refusing money when I tried to give it to him. 
And, and we so quickly slip back into our worldly mindset that if we don't have enough here or enough there, that God's not going to come through or it's not going to be enough for later. And I remember one day having a conversation with Brandy, and, I, and my mindset had to flip, and I said, "Hun, remember what happened with Joseph? God told them there would be plenty, and then there was seven years of famine. Could you imagine that when they put aside money in the time of plenty or food in the time of plenty, when the famine came, if Joseph got so fearful to give it away? If he got a hoarder's mentality that this is our future and this is everything, he started giving as people needed. He started distributing, and, and, and God works like that. God sets things aside to be used and, 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 and walk through, and when we trust and honor God, can I just tell you, your money, church, this was not supposed to be a church about money, but there's not supposed to be a sermon about money, but let's just go there. When it comes to the tithe and offering and the trust of God in your money, it will free you in so many other areas when your job is not your source of fulfillment and sufficiency and future. When the things that go into your bank account aren't your security, when you can trust God with your tithe, when you can give when the Holy Spirit prompts you to give. And we're a church that says don't give what you don't have. God is not looking for you to destroy your but he is looking for you to honor him in those things when you do those things you have a peace and you have a confidence why because you live under the lordship of God's way not the world's way and I had a conversation with a person a little while ago and I just was reminding them of Psalm 37 where it says I've never seen the righteous begging for bread or their children forsaken sometimes we get so worried that if we do things God's way Oh, am I, is it going to work? Well, God's word is true. It's trustworthy. It works. And so when we say our confidence, our hope is in the name of Jesus, what we're really saying is, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with everything. And so the way the world works works differently for me now because I'm not under the lordship of the world. I'm under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean we cast out good wisdom and we are unwise and, oh, I just live by faith and I spend all my money and I don't care about anything. Well, that's stupid. We'll have a class on finances and stewardship and the things that God wants you to do. Because God actually talks a lot about money and things in the Bible. But it can't be your source. Jesus is your source. So we look at things differently. Okay, number five. Everyone say number five. We're going to have the, the band come back up and we're going to wrap up here. When we live with Jesus as our confidence... You know, I'm beginning to love John a little bit more and more. If I'm honest, when I read the scriptures, when a guy refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved, I'm like, what's your problem, man? <laughs> you know? But it's like you begin to see the way he tells people to love others and to know Jesus. He was probably just one of the first ones that truly understood his identity in his relationship with his Savior. He wasn't being like, oh, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. God loves me more than anyone else. He goes, no, no, no. I've just learned to see myself the way Jesus sees me. And it all goes through the gospel and the way he wrote the book of John and he starts writing in his letters. He goes, he, he's saying it over and over again. He says, church, it's so pleasing to me to see that you're walking in the love of God. You're walking in the truth. You know who God is. Because when you know who God is, you understand who you are. And so John takes this little letter and 
unpacks all of this theology and at the end of his life, he's saying, don't forget what's really important. And he says, ultimately, it's Jesus. Because if you come back to the place where you realize that Jesus loves you and you see yourself as someone who Jesus loves, you can start seeing other people as people that Jesus loves, and you can have confidence and assurance of your salvation, and you can live a life full of joy, even though that sin is still there, that the struggle is real, that it's difficult in a worldly system at times. You can live full of joy in your eternal hope and salvation because of Jesus Christ. And when we come to this confident it changes the way we live out our days in relationship with God if we're going to live with confidence it's going to change the way we live out each and every day in our relationship with God verse 20 and 21 say this and we know that the son of God has come and he's given us understanding so we can know the true God and now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his son Jesus Christ he is the only true God and he is eternal life and dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your lives. Some translations say, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Church, sincerely, as we wrap up this series, you've got mail in this letter from John. Our purpose and our privilege is to know Jesus. Our purpose and our privilege is to continually know him and not just to know about him, but to actually know who he is and have a relationship with him. And one of the biggest attacks that will come in your relationship with God even comes not from your struggles, not from your sin, not from your shame. One of the biggest struggles that will come because of the world we live in is the chance that idols would love to take the place of Jesus in your heart. And so John says, little children, it's amazing to know how much joy you can find in Jesus. It's amazing to know that your hope is secure. It's amazing to see what happens when you start loving one another the way that God loves you and how you become light in the darkness and how you understand and you see through all the false teachings and you see through all this stuff. We have a world that is looking for a people who have a conviction and clarity and a confidence in who their God is and we don't have to be something to someone or accept everything to know what God wants and how he's leading for our life and we have a generation that is coming up that is looking for a direction and boundaries and clarity and they are going to find that hope in the person of Jesus Christ but what we have to really be on guard of is we get distracted and we get discouraged and we get overwhelmed and what happens is we begin to come to a place where something else takes the focal point and it becomes the idol over knowing Jesus And this can rear its head in so many ways because nobody wakes up in the morning and say, today I want to be an idol worshiper. But we just got to remember, our joy is in Jesus. Our security is in Jesus. He is supposed to be the center like Colossians talks about. So don't let your job become an idol. Don't let your social status become an idol. Don't let your money become an idol. Don't let your spouse become an idol. Parents, don't let your kids become an idol. 
Let Jesus be the center and as you seek first the kingdom of God, he will add these things to your life and he will lead you in wholeness and fullness and purpose. Why? Because we've sang it over and over again and we declare that his way is better. But sincerely, do we trust him? Do we trust him to fulfill our joy? Do we trust him to be our peace? Do we trust him with our salvation? And if we trust him with our salvation, I believe that we can trust him with every area of our life, with our kids, with our family, with our spouse, with our future, with our finances, with our job, with our relational ins and outs and ups and downs and struggles. When Jesus is at the center, we can trust that the Lordship of Jesus is gonna lead us down the best path of wholeness and fullness. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions or are looking to get connected in any further way, head to saintschurch.ca and we would love to meet you.